Funding for Think comes from SMU Master of Liberal Studies. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What role does religion play in the way American prison inmates live out their sentences and define themselves as human beings? My guest today has explored these questions through years of work and interviews with inmates, chaplains, and correctional staff, and his new book distills much of what he's learned through the lens of a single week spent inside the walls of Pennsylvania's maximum security Greaterford Prison. Joshua Dubler is assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester. His new book is called Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. Uh, And he joins us from the studios of WXXI in Rochester. Joshua, welcome to Think. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So uh, there is a significant amount of cynicism in this country surrounding the sincerity of prison inmates who find religion behind bars. What made you want to break with that in order to get a clear understanding of the role that religion plays in prison life? Um, I don't know if if I want to break from that as much as I want to call attention to its logic. Hmm. Um, It seems to me that uh, thinking of religious prisoners as insincere tells us a lot about what we think of the nature of religion and what we think about the nature of prisoners. So um, you you focus this book around Greaterford Prison near Philadelphia. Tell us a little bit about the facility and who's sent to serve time there. Uh, Greaterford is an old, sprawling, maximum security prison about 35 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um, Something like 3,500 to 4,000 men live there. Uh, About a quarter of the permanent population is serving the sentence of life uh, in prison without the possibility of parole. So people who are doing really hard time. Hmm. What sort of access do inmates there have to religious counsel and um, what sort of freedom to express themselves religiously? Well, you know, I think probably in any uh, state or federal uh, prison, you know, I think an animating paradox is that um, inside these monuments to American unfreedom, uh, you do find uh, the the protection of, of the First Amendment uh, right to free religious exercise. Uh, so um, whereas in the 1950s only a Protestant or a Catholic or a Jew would have had uh, the right to practice his religion in Greaterford, uh, over the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, there were a lot of uh, lawsuits and administrative adjustments such that now you have over the course of, uh, of a given week, uh, something like 12 religious denominations that convene uh, 55 different uh, worship services, Bible studies, musical group rehearsals. Um, so there's a lot going on, and uh, that, that's what serves as the kind of the spine of the book. You know, Joshua, something I hadn't really thought much about until I encountered your book was this idea that um, in a place where you don't have much freedom over anything else in your life, what you eat, what you wear, what time you go to bed, where you move, um, being able to choose the way you will uh, manifest your faith, if you have one, is, is a, becomes a really important kind of freedom. You said it. I mean, one of the central uh, characters in the book, a, a Catholic intellectual named Peter, uh, says precisely that, that, um, you know, where so many of your choices are made for you, uh, the few choices you have become become really important. So that's something that certainly the men at Greater Food would agree to. So um, as we discussed earlier, um, you know, it's well known that many people who have not been to prison sort of look askance at jailhouse conversions. I was interested that there are inmates, including inmates who are religious themselves who are skeptical of their peers' motivations? Uh, 
Right. Um, I, I, I have a temptation sometimes to get too abstract too fast, so uh, slow me down if that happens. But, um, uh, you know, when I said that the, the sort of knee-jerk assumption about prisoners' religious insincerity tells us a lot about how we think about religion, how we think about prisoners, um, what I have in mind is that uh, our popular notion of religion in some way uh, is, is a reflection of Protestant theology uh, in which authentic religion is heartfelt religion. Religion uh, is defined by one's faith and people who are merely going through the motions. Um, that's not real religion. So that's something we, we bring to the table, and it's something that the Supreme Court uh, during the 1960s um, brought in uh, in order to assess who has the right to, to practice their uh, religion in prison or who has the right not to go to war, uh, exemptions from from uh, from from other civic obligations, um, and then prisoners. I think that we uh, are in a time of 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 uh, of, of kind of, of brutality and um, and lack of empathy. And I think that we tend to define prisoners by virtue of their crime. Um, and so, if someone is, uh, you know, uh, we see them as a murderer or a rapist, then we tend to think that that defines their essential nature. And so. Therefore, when we when they say that they uh, uh, you know believe um, in uh, Islam, a religion of peace, or to uh, try to live their life after Christ and to be good, uh, we we just have to assume that they're they're about they're after something else. Hmm. Um, what, how were they able to say, well, I my faith is profound and pure, but I don't know about the a lot of these guys who are showing up with me every week. Right. I mean, I mean, they're part of the same kind of way of thinking about religion and prisoners as the rest of us are, yeah. if not more yeah. so. I mean, they don't have, you know, most of them don't have the luxury to be a kind of, you know, an earnest humanist, you know, desperate to see the humanity of, of everyone uh, you know, who comes in and leaves at the end of the day. They're living under um, really claustrophobic surroundings where they get to see the ugliness of people a lot. Um, so they're not always uh, charitable with each other. Uh, in terms of, uh, uh, and they refer to it as a fishbowl, right? So if if they see you and you're um, acting out on the block, or you're you're hoarding the ice, or you're beating people up, or if you're screwing other men, um, they're going to think that when it comes to your religion, that you're full of it. Hmm. You know what's interesting about observations like that is that they some of those may be things that other people are doing as well in the outside world. It's just that people have the luxury of privacy, so that uh, not everyone knows what they're doing. Most definitely. I mean, so the question is, you know, this real religion standard, where is it applied? I mean, when people ask me to characterize the sort of religious orientation of, of men in Greaterford, I, I say something like, well, think about your church, right? And there's some people who are there because they're spiritual seekers, and there's some people who are there because they're intellectuals, and there's some people who are really into the bake sale, <laughs> uh, and there's some people who, like, merely come because they're in the habit of doing it, but they're tormented by it. Or, you know, you have just the gamut. Uh, and, you know, an in individual men will move through these different modes over the course of their lifetime or even, you know, over the course of, of a given day. But very few people are able to be honest enough, even in the outside world, to say, you know, I'm there for the bake sales or I'm there to, so, you know, connect for my job. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I come from a weird place. And probably the reason I came to study religion is that I was raised by uh, Orthodox Jews who were also essentially secular humanists. Hmm. And I only kind of figured that out at age 17 or 18. 
And uh, I was talking in class today. You know, I just this morning, it's the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. And um, you take a palm branch and, and a myrtle and a willow and, and a, a citron, which is like a lemon-type fruit, and you shake it all around. And I did that this morning, and, and I, I had a great time doing it with my wife and with my son, um, without a kind of idea that there uh, is necessarily a God that commands me to do it. Um, but but that makes but that makes me kind of weird because I think most Americans, um, when they think about why we do uh, our religious practices, it's because God is who God says that he or she is, and it's very very important that we get those practices right. How do prison administrators view their obligations to honor their charges' religious freedoms? Um. It's, I mean, it's very much, I can't answer, I've never spoke direct, I guess I spoke to a couple of prison administrators, but, you know, in general, it's part of uh, their, it's part of the terrain of what, what is protected. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that there are certain, I mean, I think that prison administrators uh, in our day and age, um, they see their job to keep the prisoners safe and to keep people safe from the prisoners. And so uh, religious practices that don't seem problematic, I assume that they don't worry about too much, but that they, they are trying to keep uh, keep everyone safe um, and secure. Um, uh, the chaplains are, some of them, uh, a little more emphatic about trying to help men on their uh, spiritual paths. Um, although, uh, you know, sometimes they're just tired laborers as well. I had the the head chaplain, um, who's a uh, very thoughtful Lutheran man. Um, he expressed to me sometimes, uh, or a couple times, his concern that that the administrators regarded uh, religion there as you know they regarded it cynically as essentially um, you know behave in this life, uh, uh, and so that you'll get your wo- reward in the next life. And that he felt sometimes, or worried sometimes, that he was was complicit in uh, in what essentially was a uh, a scam. And that that's the other the other kind of ungenerous reductive framework that I think some readers will bring to the text. If the first framework is that these guys are faking it, the second framework is that like you know they're not faking at all. Like those those poor souls, right? Oh, bless their heart. You know they don't have anything, so they have their religion. Hmm. Um, and that's another kind of impulse that I want the reader to wrestle with. Or the idea, you know, I, I suppose the third narrative is uh, okay. So so now this person is you know is better off, will will no longer do anything wrong if they have found God behind bars. Well, um, in some way that belongs to the first narrative, uh, which has to do, you know, a lot of men in the chapel will, um, they will talk about being transformed, right? They They used to be something, and now they're something else. And uh, especially a lot of the the Christians, they will attribute that agency to God, having having reached out and saved them. Even though, as they'll tell you, they should have been uh, dead uh, ten times over. Hmm. Um, but so, yeah, they they will tell you that they feel um, incredibly fortunate that God has taken care of them, and it's because of the circumstances of their lives that allowed them to get to God. Um, uh, the the head Lutheran chaplain who I mentioned earlier, uh, I call him Baumgartner in the book, he likes to cut the legs out from under that. He says, uh, not everything happens for a reason. You're here because uh, you were an idiot. But the question is, now what are you going to do about it? 
Do they wrestle at all with the question of whether that that sense of transformation comes from the fact that their lives have profoundly changed, um, in large part because they are behind bars, because they no longer, you know, have the have the freedom to move about as they choose and, and do what they want and, and be out in the world? With the implication being that it's not super legit, that it's like it's space specific and that if they were out in the world, they would... Um, they would fall prey to the same the same temptations. Well, yeah, I mean, when a profound change comes in your emotional life, you have to sort of look at the. I would think at the at the changes within your physical life. For many, um, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically of of uh, of the of the of a lot of the evangelicals and and uh, Christians. But, you know, um, a central practice is the declaration of what one is now able to do because one now has a relationship with God, hmm. right? And, uh, yeah, I'm here in prison, but uh, I'm going to bear witness to, to, to what God did for me. Um, so there's a sense, you know, I think that um, the central characters in the book as a, are almost all serving life without the possibility of parole. I think that when people are coming up for parole— um, I think they're really scared. I think that there is nothing that they've done in prison that is going to prepare them for making it on the outside. Uh, the world they're going to return to is not the same world uh, that they, they know from their experience. And so it becomes all the more important to declare the power that one has because of God. And because of that power, you will not trip up the way you tripped up before. But, you know, you can read these kinds of declarations as evidence of internal states, or you can read them as uh, what we would call performative, which is to say you, you declare it so as to hopefully create an internal mm. state of confidence. My guest is Joshua Dubler. He's assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester and author of the new book, Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. Join the conversation by calling in to 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Funding for Think comes from SMU's Master of Liberal Studies program. Accepting applications for this fall to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. You can learn more at smu.edu slash MLS. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is Assistant Professor of Religion at the University of Rochester, Joshua Dubler. His new book is called Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. You can join the conversation at 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Joshua, what factors play into the particular faiths uh, to which individuals are drawn? I think uh, most of uh, the men in their in their background were 
uh, Baptists of some kind. Um, they, so they have a particular uh, predisposition um, uh, toward Scripture, toward God. Um, and that kind of basic uh, framework carries over, I think, to a lot of the, way, the ways that a lot of the men practice Islam. Um, hmm. But in addition, um, I'm sorry for a second, I was having difficulty hearing myself. Um, you know, one of the central stories that the book tells is about the evolution of the dominant form of Islam in the prison from uh, the nation of Islam, uh, a kind of, you know, black nationalist, politically oriented um, practice that, that predominated in the 70s and then uh, no longer as the nation of Islam, but uh, in the 80s and 90s and the dominant uh, form today, um, which uh, most Muslims are greater for identify as Salafi, um, and it is uh, explicitly apolitical, and it's about um, really living one's life uh, like the the Prophet and his companions did, especially concerned with purity practices. And so, one of the the questions is how this this shift happened, and and what that, whether or not that shift has something to do with uh, how life in prison has changed. So talk a little bit more about that, because um, they, they really do manifest themselves. Those two forms of Islam manifest themselves in very different ways. They they are attractive for different reasons. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, I think that when uh, I, I probably when your when your listeners uh, hear Islam in prison, you know, one of their first associations is uh, is uh, Malcolm X mm-hmm. and. Um, when the nation really took off in prisons, I think in some way um, religion was sort of the the square hole through which they could uh, drive the round peg of of a of a certain kind of politics, um, and that you know this belonged to its era. This was uh, the 1960s and into the 70s, and and that kind of black nationalism and that kind of collectivism was really part of the national uh, spirit. Um, those men, uh, they, they, a few of them remain, but they're kind of regarded as, as dinosaurs, and everything has moved very much to the theological right, um, such that uh, politics is seen as a real, um, by, the, by the dominant Muslim group, is, is seen almost as a blasphemy to make your religion about politics. Um, what predisposes one to another um, these these factions remain, and and there are sociological reasons for uh, for why they exist as they do. Uh, the the what I call the Warth Dean guys, which is the the group that used to belong to the Nation of Islam, tend to be from South Philadelphia, whereas the Salafi guys tend to be from North Philadelphia and West Philadelphia. So men will tell you at Greaterford that um, you know if I didn't know somebody on the outside, I'm not going to get to know him here. So the different religious subgroups recapitulate certain kinds of you know, barriers between neighborhood and gang that go back, you know, uh, a generation or two at this point. But they also reflect, you know, changing times, um, uh, a kind of, uh, I don't want to say the death of the religious left or the death of a kind of uh, political, politically oriented religious activism, but certainly something that, you know, nothing like what we had at the time of the civil rights movement and a kind of shift inward uh, toward a kind of practical perfectionism that you see across religious traditions in America, and which, in a way that I think is very uncomfortable, 
seems to work much better with the way that incarceration is uh, in our day and age. So back when the nation was flourishing in prisons, prison administrators were willing to let prisoners uh, have a lot of autonomy and to organize themselves in particular ways. So you had block representatives, and, and it was much more of a kind of experimental time. And now that it's become much more about control, um, it would make sense that a kind of more individual-oriented, more practical-oriented religious practice would flourish. Because there is a declining sense that sort of organizing around uh, a, a sort of a more philosophical view of religion is is fruitless behind bars. No, because the um, because the the prison population is is so atomized by how prison is administered. Mm. Um, there is, uh, you know, so a key. The book takes place over seven days, but it also narrates. Um, uh, the history of the rise of mass incarceration over the last 40 years, and it, it, it goes further back than that. But a, a key story that's told is uh, this thing called the raid, which which men still talk about all the time, uh, men and women who work at Greaterford. It was a watershed event. Um, Tom Ridge, who went on to become Bush's first director of, of Homeland Security, when he be, he ran in 1994 a sort of hard-edged uh, law and order campaign, uh, and he won. And... Um, Greaterford at the time was still a very loose institution, whereas the rest of the country had kind of moved in the direction of, of tighter confinement, uh, less about rehabilitation, more about corrections, and you know, at the limit, more about warehousing, which is to say, like the elimination of programs for prisoners and just trying to keep people uh, alive and and, and incapacitated. Uh, Greaterford remained a very wide open place, and so they came in in 1995 and and and. Not their their nominal reason was to break the control that Muslim gangs had in the prison, uh, with particular emphasis on the Warth Dean faction that it, that exerted a lot of influence in the prison, both legitimate and, and criminal. And they um, came in and 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 shipped out all the prisoner leadership, and imposed more of a culture of control. So Greaterford remains. It's not like a, a supermax prison that would have been built in the 90s, where movements are really controlled. It still remains an open place that feels kind of just like a surreal version of, I, I went to a, a public high school in New York City. So it feels just like a kind of big, loose, ramshackle public institution. Um, but it's much more atomized, and uh, me men live in fear of being either sent to the hole um, uh, for having stepped out of line or being seen as having stepped out of line, or of being shipped hmm. um, to another institution in the state. Most men are at Greaterford are from Philadelphia, and the fact that they're at Philadelphia means that they get to see their families who, who visit them. And if you get shipped out into what they call the mountains, these being the institutions that are upstate that were built in the, in the 90s, um, you don't get to see your family anymore. And the mechanisms for being shipped can be as simple as another prisoner um, drops a slip, as it said, on you, meaning files a piece of paper with the administration saying that you're doing something in violation of the rules. And if that happens, then it could be that you're, you, know, you lose your livelihood at Greaterford and you're sent to an entirely new environment where you won't see your friends and family. So people live, you know, what little they have, um, and Greaterford, actually, I think they have more than, than your run-of-the-mill prison because of its proximity to Philadelphia. There's actually a fair amount of stuff going on. Uh, there's a college program in which I taught a number of courses. But what little these men have, they're very, they value tremendously, and they live in constant uh, fear of, of losing that and being sent to another place. 
So if the raid was justified, this thing in 1995, as a way to sort of take power away from Muslim prison gangs, um, I suppose if that were true, it, it would make some sense. But but even staff members, this is really interesting. You, you say even staff members at Greaterford are somewhat skeptical of that justification. I mean, there was some truth to it. I mean, to this day, um, uh, you know, the prison runs only with the consent of the prisoners. And... Um, uh, Therefore, the administration depends on the long-term life prisoners. To um, the life prisoners are invested, especially in keeping things under order, because this is—they're not just passing through. This is this is their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how the prison functions. But back uh, before '95, uh, it really was—I've um, uh, I've heard a younger prisoner refer to it as TV-ish, meaning prison as it appears on TV. Hmm. So it was a much more wild and dangerous place. And and uh, the, the Muslim, there was some truth to the, the, the fact that the Muslim gangs were, uh, the, Muslim, the Muslim prisoners were uh, running all sorts of contraband, both in the prison uh, and out. Um, the skepticism was that uh, they paraded a whole bunch of, of, of contraband um, after the uh, the raid that they had actually that they claimed to have found, but they actually had on file. So this was it was an event that was a defining event in that it, it reshaped the culture and it terrorized the prisoners, and in some way it terrorized the staff. Staff members were fired on the spot too. So it was it was such a strange thing because I went through a uh, a new employee orientation, and the the guy who gave the the orientation was a really straight laced military style guy who started um, his presentation with an hour-long kind of um, uh, criticism of the raid and how the raid had been a kind of waste of taxpayer money. So it's just an event that really, it it changed things and people compete over its meaning and what it did. And it's just, it's talked about uh, to this day. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. You can also send email to think at kera.org. Let's go on the phone now to Clark in Weatherford. Hello, Clark. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> this subject is, is, is weighs on my mind because <clears throat> I go back to the, to the term of penitentiary, which came right. from the Quakers. That's, that's uh, right. Right. And, 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 and people who, who did wrong, they did their penance. There, there's a case to be made. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you. Hello? Did you have more to say, it, Clark? Go ahead and finish your thought, and then we'll yeah, have a I comment from Joshua. That, uh, I, I know the term penitentiary was, was the Quakers started the penitentiary for, for people to do their penance after they did some wrong. Yeah, and there's then, a, there's and a, then these, these institutions became uh, 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 cor- corporate. You know, mm-hmm. these, 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 they're corporate now. Hello. Yes, we're we're listening. Yeah. Please, please yeah. continue and finish your thought. You sound you're we're we're, and, we're uh, with you. And uh, <clears throat> and some of these. See, I I I knew a guy who did some hard time at uh, San Quentin. Mm-hmm. And uh, he read about a thousand books. <laughs> he was a book reader. And uh, and I knew a guy who was a, a, a warden at a uh, at the Maximum Security Institute in Hawaii. And so uh, I'm just saying this, this, <clears throat> these, 
these anyway, I, I, I might be off the point here. You're talking about these guys finding religion when they're in, 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 in the penitentiary? Yes. No, it's a, it's a helpful point. I mean, I think there's a, you know, the, 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 there's a case to be made that, you know, in some ways um, you can see the, the prison as the quintessentially modern institution, but its spirit um, as it was conceptualized, is a, it does have a religious spirit. Um, Quakers, uh, the caller is, you know, is correct. I mean, this was uh, right around the time of the New Republic. Uh, I mean, you know, after the revolution in, in, in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, it was a time when people thought, hey, you know, we can do it better than they've done it in the past. And so, you know, rather than uh, throw people into asylums and forget about them, um, the, the Quakers uh, and their fellow travelers, and um, they conceptualized uh, this, uh, the idea of the penitentiary, the idea being that uh, human beings are essentially good and that when uh, we mess up, it's because we've kind of fallen in with the wrong crowd. And so if you build an institution, you call it a penitentiary, where prisoners are by themselves, um, then they can uh, you know, commune with what the Quakers called their inner light, which is to say get back with, get right with God, and uh, and then uh, they'll be able to be productive citizens. Um, that was one of the kind of uh, animating philosophical uh, ideas behind the prison. I mean, it so happened that uh, they were way wrong, um, not about what makes people um, sin, but about what will happen to people when you put them by themselves. Uh, people would uh, lose their minds uh, um, rather quickly uh, when they were in complete isolation. And then on top of that, um, once it became the norm that what you were going to do to someone who broke the law was put them in the prison, then pretty soon the the the, the ideal of sol- of solitary was sacrificed to the reality of overcrowding. Mm. So you have a, a you know a strange thing with the prison in that um, it's uh, the philosophical justification of why we punish uh, continues to change, or uh, even as the institution might in some ways uh, remain the same. Um, I think your your a couple other points the caller made when he referred to it as corporate. I mean, I think it is indisputable that um, uh, there is a big business to building prisons. You know, and one of the stories that's told about the prison boom over the last forty years, in which the prison population has climbed nationally something like seven hundred percent, is that uh, prisons communities see prisons as uh, a solution to uh, the problem of, of post-industrialization, which is to say, you don't have factories anymore. What can you do? And so. Uh, Prisons are a big business, whether it be private or whether it be public. Joshua, how did embracing religion affect the way that the men you studied and worked with felt about themselves and their own identities? It really depends on the particular. You know, I mean, uh, the... I appreciate the question because it gives me a chance to, to talk about, you know, specific men. I mean... You'd have to answer it in in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the um, uh, the three central characters, um, in addition to myself, are a, a guy named Baraka who used to be in the Nation of Islam, and he's a kind of stoic philosopher and kind of is secular, and he doesn't exactly trust uh, that he knows who God is. Um, uh, he is about discipline, and he's always seen in religion, the value of discipline. He talks the language, uh, the, the language of the nation of Islam, of, of uplift, of group uplift, and of, of, of you know, of, of improving oneself. And so that's what he found in the nation of Islam, and that's what he continues to find in, in the practice of Islam, is tools for improvement of himself and his community. Um, 
someone like Al, another central character who grew up with with Baraka and who uh, used to be in the Nation of Islam. But, you know, one, he, um, uh, uh, the evangelicals, I end up knowing a, a lot more about their crimes because of the, the practice of, of giving testimony. Um, and so I know that he was essentially a, a hitman for, uh, for a gang out on the street. And, and one day, you know, he was just knocked over by the Holy Spirit um, when he was on his way to, to, to hurt someone. Um, and he will tell you that, and this is one of the aphorisms, uh, an epigram that begins the book, that, um, uh, uh, that you know he's still a, he's a monster inside he would tell you but it's because of Christ um that he's able to overcome who he is by his nature and that it's the love of Christ that that thoroughly transforms him and makes him a creature motivated by love and not by rage you know so you you'd get very different answers depending on who you talk to but the idea that i am no longer the man i once was because in some way of, of the religion I practice or how God reached out to me is a, is a very common theme. My guest is Joshua Dubler. He's assistant professor of religion at the University of Rochester and author of the book Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. You can join the conversation by calling in to 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Funding for THINK comes from SMU's Master of Liberal Studies program. Accepting applications for this fall to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. You can learn more at smu.edu mls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Joshua Dubler, Assistant Professor of Religion at the University of Rochester and author of the book Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. If you'd like to join us, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. Joshua, you were able to witness a number of interesting conversations that that, um, individuals had about their faith, um, often when they didn't necessarily believe exactly the same thing. Yeah, I mean, both witness and and participate in. I mean, pretty early on, I I decided that uh, scientific protocol be damned. I was going (laughs) to mix it up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's one of the, uh, the caller said earlier that he had had a friend uh, who went to prison and read a whole lot of books. You know, it is in a weird way moving back from I was at Princeton University at the time from from Princeton to prison. It is a uh, a, in a in a strange, perverse way, like a a real place where where people can engage in intellectual inquiry Hmm. um, in a way that most uh, of our uh, most people are too busy uh, working um, to read books and argue endlessly uh, about uh, who God is, but that kind of of argument, especially when I was around, because I was I was there to argue. But mm-hmm. but that kind of argument, both within religious rituals, but also among the chapel workers, uh, is a, is a kind of standard practice. I mean, so the I don't think I mentioned the chapel workers, but uh, Alan Baraka, who I who I mentioned earlier, are among the fourteen or fifteen men who work in the chapel, uh, who earn between nineteen and forty one cents an hour to work as 
uh, janitors or clerks. And because they're in the chapel all the time, um, uh, they're the central characters in the book. And they're also, many of them, even the, the ones from different uh, faith traditions, uh, they are old friends. And so it's, you know, arguments about religion, um, how we know that uh, that the words in Scripture are really what God said, um, in some ways that's, you know, it's it's a pastime. It's a pastime, and by calling it a pastime, I don't mean that it's an idle pastime and that it isn't earnest and uh, heartfelt and the stakes aren't really high. I think the stakes are often quite high, but um, it's also uh, a kind of, you know, something uh, that they do during the day. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go next on the phone to Chevis in Dallas. Hi, Chevis. Hey, how are you both doing? Very well, thank you. Thank Good. A uh, couple of quick questions. Uh, I'm a conservative Christian Republican who is also a criminal defense attorney, and uh, I, I don't know if the author has noticed this, but I've seen a kind of thaw on the right in America about criminality and uh, uh, mandatory minimum sentences and that maybe we shouldn't warehouse these people forever. I don't know if he's saw, seen that or not, and I'd be interested in his opinion. And two, I've had clients who, when they were in jail, were extremely religious and uh, very faithful to what they believed in, uh, no matter what faith. And then most of them, when they get out, that kind of falls by the wayside. And I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Thanks Thank for your call. Thank you so much for the call. Um, I think that there, uh, I see what you're seeing, um, a thaw, whether it be on, on, on the right, left, or center. I mean, it, it, there has been since, uh, you know, Michael Dukakis was done in by um, uh, the Willie Horton uh, ad, um, there's been little reason for anyone on the left to risk anything uh, to be perceived as, as pro-prisoner. So, uh, you know, during the Clinton years and then during the Bush years, things have only gotten uh, tougher. Uh, and more restrictive. And in the thaw on the right, uh, it might have to do with uh, the, the sort of religious resources of compassion among Christians. And it might also have to do with a kind of common sense uh, that belongs to our current era of, uh, of austerity in state houses. I mean, it's uh, if you're looking to save money and uh, you're throwing, you know, in, in California and other places, there are people serving life in prison without parole for stealing chocolate chip cookies. It seems like a place where we, we might have prudent reforms and send some people home. Um, as for the, uh, the religion in, in prison and whether it continues, um, you know, most of the, the central characters of the book uh, probably won't get a chance to find out. Um, but it certainly seems to me that, uh, uh, and the chaplains also lament this fact, you know, they wonder how much are we helping men to, to survive only in this very weird place. I mean, I think it comes down to uh, the lack of continuity of, of practices. I think that if there were... Um, uh, you know, there are some faith-based halfway houses where I think men um, can go out and continue their practices. But, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you're, you move from the structure of the prison to the outside world and you have to make it all up by scratch. And especially if you've been kind of riding on the structure when you're in prison, I think it's just exceedingly difficult to take care of yourself and to provide yourself what you need spiritually. I mean, I, I find it difficult myself, so I can only imagine how difficult it would be to have to do it all at once after being uh, inside prison for 20 years where, where essentially your, 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 your uh, time is not your own. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Next on the line, we have Ray, who's from Rochester, New York, but is actually on the road here in North Texas. Hi, Ray. Hello. Good afternoon, folks. How are you? Very well. Thank you. 
good. Thank you. Uh, just a, a quick testimony, as <laughs> the author liked to say. Um, I was incarcerated uh, in upstate New York and went through that system from 1987 to 1993 uh, uh, for a series of uh, home burglaries. And um, while there, uh, actually, not at Wendy, which is the initial endpoint, uh, Wendy Correctional Facility in upstate New York. But uh, when I got to Mid-State, which is where I served the bulk of my time, um, I did have a, a rather profound experience uh, with a visiting pastor from uh, Calvary Chapel in that region. And uh, actually, uh, ended up giving my life to the Lord, uh, uh, accepting Christ as Savior and all that. And, you know, the the impact of my life since then has been profound. Uh, once I got out, I was able to, you know, after a, a good length of time, to um, have that record expunged. I uh, since became a pastor in Calvary Chapel and have planted many churches now um, and have had the opportunity to uh, begin a chaplaincy program uh, with uh, Louisa County uh, in Virginia uh, as a chaplain. Uh, so, uh, and served with them for five and a half years as a uniformed chaplain who was armed. Uh, so, even to this day, it continues. I'm still serving as a chaplain, I mean, both as a chaplain and a pastor. Well, I really appreciate you calling and sharing your story, Ray. And I'm glad to hear that things have absolutely looked up for you since the time of your incarceration. Did you want to uh, respond to any of that, Joshua? No, I, I really appreciate it as well. I feel as if uh, Ray, Ray should be the guest. Uh, but um, do you have anything to say about what seem to be two questions that are that uh, that have been asked? One, this question yeah. of religious sincerity. Um, is that something that you had? Was that something that prisoners when when you were incarcerated that they worried about that they talked about is you think it's a fair concern and then second uh, how did you find the transition back to the street well uh, you know both of the previous callers uh, observations uh, the attorney's observations are correct you know many uh, you know recidivism in New York is 87 percent um, and that's extremely high and uh, those who find religion I think it, it drops down to about 40 percent or so. Um, but many of those are, you know, the, the jailhouse conversions where, you know, to cope with the incredible stresses of incarceration for a time, um, you know, they conform to whatever religion that they feel most comfortable with. And because of, you know, the support systems that are built inherently into those religious structures, they're able to cope. Uh, but as they get out, you know, they begin to fall back into old ways of life, old, you know, choices, old friends and all that. So they fall back into that whole recidivism thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I saw that the more that I kept into it, the closer that I held to, you know, that first experience, um, you know, by uh, renewing it, if you will, uh, as much as I could, that I found that it was... Uh, very beneficial. Josh, thank thoughts? you. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I, I do find that um, a metaphor that does important work for me is that of uh, fidelity um, and fidelity to an event when we think about uh, ethics and what kind of people we're trying to be. And definitely um, uh, someone who uh, came to experience Christ or give his life over to Christ on a certain day 
when you uh, remember that and when you when you tell other people about that, it is this process of trying to recenter uh, to the kinds of feelings and the commitments that you had at that first moment. And the same thing with the Muslims who talk about how they took their shahada on such and such a day. It is about an, an attempt to stay true to something. And I, I really appreciate that framework of staying true to it because it's something that um, I think secular people can also uh, relate to. Um, and I know that uh, for me, you know, my experience researching this book and getting to know these men is also just such an event where uh, it's, you know, it's very much something where I'm a better person uh, the more that I can uh, stay true to it. To the extent that, that um, chaplains know that certain individuals will really connect with faith during the time they're incarcerated and then be released and maybe drift away from that, I mean, that has to be disheartening. On the other hand, as you said, you know, that, that they wonder if maybe they're just helping people survive in this weird environment. I mean, there has to be some, you know, sort of humanistic value simply to helping them achieve that. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't see why, um, you know, Real life is outside the prison, and prison life is some kind of suspension of real life. Mm. You know, we're uh, we, we all do the best we can. We're all, we're all trying to figure out how to cope, and it seems like a you know uh, a, a real problem that uh, we don't necessarily provide the resources um, uh, to prisoners uh, at reentry. Um, that actually is a secondary problem to the fact that m- most prisoners at Greaterford will never get a chance to reenter at all. Um, but no, it, it's uh, you know there are there there's a character in the book Brian, uh, uh, a very argumentative Jew, and he's very clear in his position uh, that nothing that matters here is real. This is all a game. It's all a con, um, and you know that position is represented in the book. Um, one of the chaplains attributes that position to you know his 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 own attempt to distance himself from some of the brutality that he uh, that he endured in the prison. Um, but you know, it's it's life. Life continues in the prison, and, and uh, uh, men try to make their way in it. Has this line of inquiry affected the way you see religion in the world outside of prison walls, or maybe America outside of prison walls? So one of the the book as a kind of academic venture is. Um, is resistant to kind of making a single argument about what religion is, because I think that those arguments uh, uh, really just show a lot about what we bring to the table. Mm -hmm. But something that knocked me out, um, and it just shows the kind of uh, my own provincialness. You know, I grew up in in New York City, and, uh, uh, you know, you you mistake where you're from for the world, especially if you're from New York. And and I grew up among uh, religious people, um, as I described. But um, I was really, you know, knocked out in a way that I shouldn't have been to spend all this time with men who who felt their faith so deeply and, and committed to their faith uh, so earnestly. Um, uh, so a central theme of the book comes to be one of, of confidence. I would just marvel at, you know, at, at the confidence these men have with with their, their religious truths and what they think those truths uh, mean for their for their life. What do you think that Americans need to understand about life in prison that that maybe reading your book or or tr- looking at it through this lens could could maybe help them understand um, to the extent that maybe it would lead to better policy or simply greater acceptance of you know ex convicts when they are released from prison. Um. The, many of the men in the book have done uh, terrible things and uh, have ruined lives, um, uh, as they would 
tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be hard-pressed, though, to imagine a reader uh, who would read my book and say, oh, yes, that's that's wise and just for us to keep uh, men like this in prison till they die. Um, uh, it just seems like an inevitable um, conclusion. And the, the, the reader might think that I'm a Pollyanna-ish or uh, a bleeding heart, but it seems to me uh, quite clear that uh, our policies are, uh, are are too draconian and um, and uh, a, a real waste. So I, I'd like the reader. To, I mean, I, I'm confident the reader will think that. At the next level, um, you know, I want the reader to wrestle with the what I was calling earlier. You know, the Marxist framing of religion that that it's you know it's the kind of the opiate of the masses, and and these guys are kind of like getting sold a bill of goods. They have their religion because they have nothing else. Um, I happen to. Uh, reject that. Um, but I think there's something to it in that when we think about um, the relationship between what we believe and what we do in our circumstances, and I think that that kind of, if the reader is willing to apply that same uh, set of tools to their own lives, they can think about what role the re- all of us play in maintaining American mass incarceration and what we might do to end it. Joshua Dubler's new book is Down in the Chapel, Religious Life in an American Prison. He joined us from the studios of WXXI in Rochester, New York. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your engagement. Today's show was engineered by Shelley Canavy. Our podcast is produced by Christine McConnell. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer, and Jeff Whittington is executive producer. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.